Everybody, you've got opposing the matrix here. This is uh, Dave. It's uh, kind of an odd day for us to be on. It is uh, what is it? Wednesday, the uh, well, I got a window system here. Nine four of two thousand nineteen, and um, tonight we have after overcoming very uh, many difficulties, um, we have Mr. Ralph Epperson on with us again. Hey, Ralph. Hey, Gabriel. How are you, sir? Good, good. We're going to have a good show with no voices cutting out or anything today. I know we are. I prayed it, and I know it's going to happen. I've got to point out I'm wearing my Dodger hat, and I found (laughs) out tonight that you're a Yankee fan. I shouldn't have even started this thing with you because you are the hated enemy. But (laughs) I will wave that, and we'll do this thing because I I want your listeners to learn about the Vietnamese War. Yeah, that's true. I am the hated enemy, not hating, hated. But uh, yeah, that, that that would be a whole a whole show, a whole good two hour show about the Yankees and Dodgers. Oh yes. Uh, all I got to say is that you guys were once in New York before you decided to to leave and yes. and go away. But um, anyway, yeah. So tonight, folks, we're going to talk about the Vietnam War, America's treason and betrayal. Ralph has these DVDs out on on uh, the internet. You can watch them. You can also order them from him. Um, very interesting series and. Uh, and I wanted to start out by saying that uh, I know this is, sounds like a very controversial subject, and uh, to many it may be, uh, but uh, we, we're not coming here to slam the soldiers that either went to Vietnam or, or went and didn't come back. Um, and Ralph, has a, a, as we were talking the other day, and I'm going to turn it over to him in a second, about how we feel when we, we go to like the Vietnam Wall or even the World War II Wall. And that you just a sense of morose comes over you. You just start crying for the poor souls that that lost their lives in these conflicts and and um, and, you know, could have come back and been, you know, had families and raised children and had grandchildren and everything else. And they never did. So, Ralph, why don't you you know, how do you feel about that? You were, you were telling me a story about Arlington or something, I think. Yeah, well, it was about, well, I, I, in 1985, after I wrote my book, The Unseen Hand, I was, uh, went on a speaking tour with my book, and I covered 91 cities in 31 states, and one of those was in Washington, D.C., those speeches, and the fellow that picked me up at the airport, uh, I got in about noon, I guess, he said, well, I'll, I took the afternoon off, we drove around Washington, D.C., and he pointed out the big, uh, uh, the big things like the you know the Washington Monument and the Capitol building, and we drove by Lincoln's Memorial, and I said I want to I want to stop there. So we parked the car and I went up there, and I was I really was very moved by by that. It's a huge statue of him sitting in a, of course he's not alive, but I had the greatest admiration for, him for what he did for us in this in the Civil War, and so I, that moved me very much. And so we were now leaving, and we walked down the stairs to the front to get up, and as I noticed, I did. I noticed the Vietnamese wall across the street. So I said, I want to go there. So the two of us walked over, and it's, I don't know, maybe 50 feet long or something. And I walked that thing, 
as far as I know, I had no classmates or relatives that went there, didn't come back, or there, no names would have been on that wall. But I, I, I just looked at them, and I cried the whole time I went around there for reasons I'll briefly cover in a minute. I just couldn't contain myself because that was a war that we didn't have to fight. And we did. We didn't actually fight it. It's a, what an abomination, as you're going to see when you see this video. So I made the uh, video in uh, uh, original 1992, but it was released on the internet in the year I think 2000, and that's what you'll see. I think I might have made a couple of amendments or uh, added comments in it as it came out, but it's on the internet right now. We're going to try to cover part uh, one and two tonight and then maybe a week later we'll cover three and four because it's well close to four hours long and I did it because I wanted to set the record straight and I still haven't found anyone else that I've read or heard about that's ever tried to explain what we're going to see about this war I'm really serious there's things in here that I don't know anyone else talking about and we'll cover a couple of them and then we'll watch for them during the program itself uh, just so you know, I've been a writer of conspiracies since uh, my first book in 1985, although I started reading in 1962 and uh, got into the what was called the revisionist history movement back in 60, 1962 when I was just after college. And uh, so I started reading and I finally wrote my first book in 1985. And in there I talked about Vietnam, but even then I didn't know what I know today, as we're going to see later on. So I finally released this in uh, 1992 and then uh, put it on the Internet in the year 2000. So I, I write uh, the conspiratorial view of history uh, that holds that there is a conspiracy. It's alive and well and has been for 6,000 years. I didn't know that at the time, but I kept reading and researching. And the more that I researched, the more I realized, and I'm sure you'll say the same thing, David, the more you get into this, the more evidence you find that you're right. And that's what I've done. So you're going to say, well, I've uh, heard this all before. No, you haven't. Not this particular thing. I can almost guarantee you, you're going to hear things that you've never heard before. And no one's ever written about either. So I'm convinced that if there is a conspiracy, I've also convinced that the accidental view is the one we're taught as students. It holds that no one really knows why wars and revolutions and depressions happen. They just do and we don't know why, and we're powerless to prevent them. That's the biggest lie. Well, not the biggest one, but it's a huge lie. So tonight's thing is entitled Vietnam, America's Betrayal and Treason. We're going to see that our own government betrayed those fighting forces, and they committed actual, documentable acts of treason, which is defined as giving aid and comfort to our enemies, and that's what we were doing, as we're going to see later on during this whole thing. So I looked into that, and I found out that the uh, there was a conspiracy in the war in Vietnam, and the purpose of it was to create a war, uh, get divide up uh, uh, Indochina into three nations, one of which was called Vietnam, then cut that in half, and name the North uh, North Vietnam and South Vietnam. And then they turned the North Vietnamese over to the communists, and we took over the South Vietnam. And then we sent, uh, started a war, and then we sent uh, advisors uh, to teach the South Vietnamese on how to fight war. And finally, uh, John Kennedy came along in 1963. Within 
three or four days before he left to go to Dallas, he issued an order to withdraw the first thousand of these advisors. And he pr promised that by the time after he was reelected, he was going to withdraw all of them and get out of a war that hadn't even started. As far as we were directly involved, we were indirectly involved by having advisors creating an army. So we had to have a war. So they're going to plan the war. So the North would be financed by Russia and China and the United States, would, the South would be financed by the North, by the United States. And then, and then we would supply Russia. 80% of the war materials came from Russia. And all the time during the eight years of the war, we were sending war making technology to Russia during the entirety of the war. That is called premeditated treason, giving aid and comfort to the enemy. And I'm going to document that. I'm not going to just say some guy in Topeka said it or some sergeant right back found some papers in Ho Chi, you know, in some city. I'm going to document with government reports and others who prove that. Mm -hmm. uh, we started the war in 1964. Well, actually, in the, after the World War II, uh, Japan was in that area fighting, as you know, in World War II. And as they were losing the war, they started to withdraw their troops to protect the homeland. And when they did, they abandoned tons and tons of uh, war-making technology. So we had an OSS, the preliminary of the CIA, and they gathered it all up and hired Ho Chi Minh to start a revolution. He was an OSS agent in 1944-45. He was in charge. We created him. We trained him. Generals, American generals, were not only aiding the South Vietnamese, we were training a guerrilla army in 45 and 46. Where you'll see that documented. So now our State Department, one of the officials said, Ho was a good communist. So as long as he's a good communist, we can support him. But he was not a good communist. In Parade Magazine in 1973 said an article when Ho was an intelligence agent for the USS, United States. So John Kennedy went to Dallas after four days after he issued orders to withdraw the first thousand troops. He never came back, and four days later, Johnson canceled those orders, and we started the war shortly thereafter. Now, I've read 52 books on the JFK assassination, and I'm convinced that the reason he was killed was, was because of Vietnam. Other things he did contributed, but the major reason was Vietnam. Our government planned that war in at least 1944. It didn't start till 64. That's 20 years later. We started the war, we planned it with Ho Chi Minh, and then turned it over to him, and then we declared war against him. That's what kind of guys we are. So anyway, JFK wanted to end a war that hadn't started. That's enough, I think, to give you... Oh, one more thing I want to mention. I don't know anyone else that's brought this up except the man that originated it. I know that he came up with this plan and put it out on a, a newsletter he had way back in the 70s. Uh, but he's the one that found the evidence that that uh, there was a dredge in the port of Haiphong and uh, that 
if you want to win a war where Haiphong was the only port in North Vietnam that had deep water ability, and they, they didn't have it. There was a, a canal linking the Gulf of Tonkin. You'll see a map of this. It'll make sense to you in a little while. And then they, they dug out a canal to get to the lake, and the lake was where the port was. So that canal had a dredge in it working seven, a 24-7-365 continuously mucking out the Red River that dumped tons of mud in the in the port every every day. So that was the way that, so we should have blockaded the port or blown up the, the uh, uh, mine or whatever, we didn't do it. So my, this friend, one man, one man with the assistance of two more, three American patriots, I will name them and tell you their story. One man forced Nixon to end the war before it was scheduled to be ended by our government. Mm-hmm. That war was fought for eight years. If if this man had decided to do this four years earlier, the war would have ended four years earlier, but he didn't know about it until the year before he proposed a proposal. And I'll give you the details for that. So that'll be the, probably the best thing that I can do. Give you a brief outline. I want to warn you, this is not going to be pleasant because this war was planned by our government, not the, not the generals in the uh, Pentagon. It was planned by uh, uh, bureaucrats and the, the conspiracy controlling John Kennedy, as you're going to find out during the, the time of this. So what I'd like to suggest then is, David, if you want to make a comment or ask a question, Go right ahead, but if not, let's uh, show start the uh, showing of the video, approximately uh, two hours long tonight. Uh, parts one and two of a four part. We'll cover the next two parts uh, next week, with your blessings, mm-hmm. and I will invite your listeners to come back in two in a week and see the rest of the story, because we're going to cover the whole four hours. And I want to just please understand this is not going to be pleasant. You will, I can guarantee you. You've never heard anyone explain this war like you're going to see in this four-hour DVD. Yeah, the truth very seldom is pleasant, you know. Um, Ralph, in the DVD, does it talk about the French? No, I know a little bit about that, but we did everything we could to betray the French as well because we wanted them out of there. So, But I don't know much about it. All I can tell you is that in 1944, we found a a communist guerrilla named Ho Chi Minh, and we took him aside and said, we're going to start a war. We want you to lead the North Vietnamese. So we're going to help you create a guerrilla army. We're going to send generals to train your your guerrilla army in 44 and 45. Um, oh, by the way, I want to thank you for, uh, up, uh, your, I probably can't see in a small screen, but behind you on the right side on the second shelf down, you've got a, a book there. It looks somewhat familiar. I can hardly read the title. What, what does it say? Could you turn Is that called up? The Unseen Hand or something like that? Yeah, what do you, who, do you know the guy that, you lucky, did you know the guy that wrote it? Yeah, I do. As a matter of fact, I'm talking to him right now. Oh, really? Thank you, you for writing that book. Well, I would deny writing that book. I bet that book's crazy. But thank you very much. <laughs> You've got it facing out, and it's just enough that people are going to say, what does that say? It's going to look hard. you got a glare on you got to fix the glare on because there's a stripe. Can you see that on your... Screen is a glare. No, it's, it's so small, I can't see a darn thing. But, yeah, uh, but I can but, see. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, if in the other room, if you were, if we were in the other room, the uh, 
the New World Order is sitting in the same manner there. Okay, we'll do that when we come to that book. Okay. You got a question or comment? Go ahead. Um, no, my comment basically was about any French involvement that was in there. But I, I do know what you're talking about because um, I, you know, I, I was a kid when that was going on, but I did know people that went over there and didn't come back. Yeah. And and it's uh, when, when you think about it, and and I've thought had a, I, I don't know today's kids they don't think a lot, you know, um, and that's because they haven't taught to think. It's not their fault. They just haven't been taught to think. But I, I think a lot, and I think that, you know, what would have been the outcome if we would have known the truth about uh, purposeful history instead of accidental history, you know, and, and the people would have rose up and, and fought it before it actually happened, you know, and it's, I, th- I guess it's all in the grand scheme of things, you know. Uh, I saw a bumper sticker during the Vietnamese War that said, suppose they gave a war. And nobody showed up. Yeah. That was what they were trying to do. Boy, I was in favor of that once I found out what was going on. We should have sent our young people over there, especially when you see the evidence that we were trading with Russia for eight years. Wait till you see the documentation for this. It's mind-blowing. Yeah. Nixon and Johnson both individually had the power to prevent it. They don't need to go to Congress. They need to go to the American people. They'll take it up with the Secretary of Defense. They have the power by themselves to stop it, and they didn't do it. Why? 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 Please, anybody, tell me why. Well, they have handlers, and the handlers didn't want it to stop. <clears throat> but um, if you ever get a chance, Ralph, I'll send you the name of the movie. I can't remember it right now, but I I like to watch time travel movies. Um, it's one of my favorite subjects. I'm drawn to it. But there was a movie where that almost happened. Uh, actually, it did happen in the movie. Um, and and the real, real quick, the scenario, because I know we want to get on with the with the video presentation. Um, this boy was always lamenting because his brother went to war, and he had always wished that uh, we had, he'd never gone to the Vietnam War because he missed his brother. His brother was killed in Vietnam. And so uh, he hooked up with a professor who had a time machine, and he manipulated it to where he could go back in time and stop Oswald. But we know that it wasn't Oswald. Oh, but, uh, you know, the, the, the theory is that it was. And so he goes and <clears throat> gets there just before Oswald shoots, gets in a fight with Oswald. After, I see actually Oswald headshot, and Oswald throws him the gun and runs out of the building. So this guy gets framed. Oh, so no. they're looking at the news in the future. And, oh, this isn't good. So the girlfriend comes back, and then she gets mixed up in it. So finally, the the, the whole gist of the thing is the professor came back in time, and he knew Lyndon Johnson when he was younger. And he brought back a film of Vietnam and showed him what Vietnam was all about, you know, and how we lost the war. Um, Well, anyway, Lyndon Johnson, you see him thinking kind of like this, you know, with his hand on his chin. And he goes, well, he says, thank you. You've helped me make a decision. And instead of stopping the war, Lyndon Johnson says, we're just going to have to send more troops, you know. And so they came back in time and um, uh, to present time. And uh, what happened was uh, the guy hears, you know, a knock on his door one day. And he looks up at the picture frame that's up above the um, chimney. And his brother's in that picture, and his brother wasn't there before. And the brother's at the front door, and he says, he says, oh, he says, you know, he says, uh, Want to go fishing? I'm waiting to go fishing, you know. And so what happened was um, 
somehow the brother had uh, something had been changed in the past where the brother got hurt and couldn't go to the war. And so he was his life was spared. So he got his dream. Oh. You know, all the other soldiers didn't. But uh, uh, there's about four movies that are made like that. And it's it's. I'd love to know. Watch that movie. By the way, I'm going to make a statement that you. I don't. People think I'm crazy, but I'm going to go back. You might remember. Let's go back. Johnson was vice president. Johnson knew about the assassination in advance. Right. I don't know when he found out, but he did know. There's evidence of that. Provable evidence. So Johnson became president in '63 and ran for election in '64 on his own. But then in '68 he decided not to run. He told us that he would not seek the office of presidency. This is my theory. I think Johnson learned about the plans to intentionally murder our fighting forces. Right. And said, I'm, I'm the commander in chief and I could stop it. And if I do, I'm dead. So I just decided I'm going to run away from it. I believe that Johnson had a tang of conscience. That's only theory. I can't prove that because people say, no, Johnson, he was ambitious, but he already became president by accident with the assassination of President Kennedy and then ran on his own. So he was elected on his own. But he decided in 68 not to. And I think it was because he, he knew that he had the power to stop that war by blockading or blowing up the uh, mining, the port of Haiphong. And within six months, the war would be over. And, right. and then we could get our troops out forever. But but I think he's but he knew that wasn't the plan, so right. I uh, that's the theory. But I really believe it. I think he really had a because I understand he later on became uh, was a at least a beer drinker, and it, his, his Secret Service reported that he used to drive the uh, the, uh, the highways in Texas at 100 miles an hour drinking beer. So maybe really? he wanted to commit suicide. I don't. That's once again another story. But I believe he actually had a pang of conscience, and I, yeah. I that reason alone, he should have come out and told the American people what it was. That, but of course, he wouldn't survive. So well, there's always a deathbed confession, you know, and he could have done yeah. that. All right, what I would have done is put it in writing, and then made sure that I, I had it ten thousand copies of it printed, and they were in a safe, secure place, and the guy that printed it was loyal and wouldn't reveal it, and then right. upon my death, released the book. Because I died a normal death that way. That's what I would have done. Posthumously, yeah, that's that's a good idea. So, but it didn't get done, unfortunately. Uh, and uh, and you can't go back and change the past. At least they say you can't. Um, so anyway, I guess without further ado, we'll just go ahead and uh, and Ralph will uh, we'll go ahead and uh, close this session and meld it with the the uh, the video that we're going to place right after it. And uh, but don't get off, okay? Because I want to, you know, fellowship with you a little more. So, folks, um, you're about to embark in an endeavor, an adventure that uh, is going to blow your mind, like <laughs> like everything that Ralph does, it blows your mind. Um, by the way, Ralph, I um, before we go, uh, somebody that you and I both know, you know, we've all talked together, um, had a hard time uh, with the Russians. Russians don't have nukes uh, video, and. Uh, it spurred him on to do some research himself because he, he told me, he says, oh, he says, I don't know, Ralph is, you know, that that one's kind of far out. That one's kind of hard to believe. Well, he did some research himself, and now he, he knows. <laughs> he, he, he actually figured it out, you know, that they, they have never had the capability to, to launch a nuclear strike. Uh, 
Well, wonderful. That, that, yeah. That's a good that's a good testimony. He, he said, I don't believe you, Epperson. I'm going to go research it. And he did and found out that I was right. And that's what everybody should do. You know, you don't believe it? Go research it. And do it. Do it. Research it wanting to know the truth, not trying to prove you wrong, but wanting to know the truth. Amen. You know? And so um, I just wanted to plug that in there before we started the video. Thank you very much. That's good, good testimony. You might, if you get a chance to tell this, if you get to see him again, thank him for me. And oh, I definitely will. I'd love to talk to him. You know, so he can just do it by going on email or, you know, through you or somehow give him a phone number and have him okay. come and love to talk to him. Okay, definitely. Okay, well, let me uh, go ahead and I'll close this off and uh, and then we'll go from there, okay? So, okay, folks, get your seatbelts on, your popcorn ready, and get ready to go for a ride. Here we go. Vietnam, America's Betrayal and Treason. A four-hour presentation of the evidence that America planned the Vietnamese War of 1964 to 1975 years in advance. For a reason not made public to the people of the United States until now. A presentation of Publius Production. Permission is granted to make copies of this presentation. This is Ralph Epperson, and I will be the one presenting this material on this DVD. For the sake of any dated material in this lecture, I'm making this DVD on the 9th of April, 2010. What you are about to see is an update of a three-hour VHS tape that I wrote and produced in 1992 and put into my catalog of materials I have for sale. And as far as I was able to tell, this three-hour presentation was the most complete and thoroughly documented study of the war in Vietnam that I was able to find. Let me point out that this is a PowerPoint presentation and that this computer program will not let me speak during a slide change. So it might sound a little disjointed, but that is the way this program works. The first question I would like to answer is this one. Why am I making a DVD about a war that ended in 1975? And the answer is because I want to set the record straight for the historians of the future. Because what I'm about to document has never been told before as far as I'm able to determine. I am reminded of the quote attributed to the poet and philosopher George Santayana, who wrote, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And the reason America is currently fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan is because America has not remembered the past and we have repeated it. And I want this record to be saved for those historians who follow after me. Now, I must warn you, I'm certain that some of what I will discuss is capable of offending you, and I am sorry for that. But I am reminded of what Patrick Henry, one of this nation's great founding fathers, said about the truth back during the days prior to the signing of the Declaration of Independence on July the 4th, 1776. He, both, he spoke about why we should want to be exposed to the truth. So these are some of the things he said on March the 23rd, 1775. We are apt to shut our eyes against a painful truth. 
and listen to that siren till she transforms us into beasts. For my part, whatever anguish of spirit it might cost, I am willing to know the whole truth, to know the worst, and to provide for it. So if you are offended by the truth, I humbly suggest that you turn this DVD off because much of the material I will be discussing is, as Patrick Henry termed it, a painful truth. I would like all of you to please consider yourself on a jury. And as jury members, you are asked to be as impartial as you can, forgetting any previous thoughts you might have about the war before you reach a verdict. Because what you are going to hear and see will be evidence that the American government actually knowingly murdered their own fighting forces in Vietnam. That is certainly not a popular or pleasant thought to hold. And if you are open to the evidence that I will present, this might be the first time you have ever heard the truth about this war and why our nation was involved in that war in Vietnam. This is a slide photograph of the magnificent Grand Canyon in my home state of Arizona. I'm going to present over 1,200 other slide photographs of the story of the war in Vietnam. What you are about to view is like a puzzle made up of many individual pieces. And there will be parts of it that you will not agree with. But I would like to urge you to discard those parts you have a problem with accepting. And when you do, you will still see that the picture is of the Grand Canyon, even though there are parts of the picture missing. And even with parts of the story of the war in Vietnam missing, you will still have enough to agree with me that there is a real concealed story in the details of the war in Vietnam. And I believe that even with the remaining evidence, it is still clear enough to see that the American government murdered 58,000 of America's fighting forces in Vietnam. There is simply no other explanation as to why these events happened. I am a graduate of the University of Arizona, but what I am covering today was not taught to me in college. I have had to self-study, and in the intervening 47 years since I started my research, I have learned that some of this world's history needs to be revised. I've discovered the existence of a 6,000-year-old conspiracy at work in the world as part of my study of what I call the conspiratorial view of history. This view holds that a conspiracy has planned the major events of the past for a specific reason that I hope to make clear during this presentation. What I was taught all the way through college was what I call the accidental view of history, which holds that no one knows why wars, depressions, and revolutions occur. They just do. I was actually paid by the state of Oregon to teach my views in a community college in Portland, and I have lectured in many states for many years. And I have authored four books on the subject. My first book was entitled The Unseen Hand, An Introduction to the Conspiratorial View of History. 
It was published in 1985 and is still being reprinted. In fact, it has been published in six European nations by publishers who contacted me for permission to publish it in their own language in their own respective nation. My second book is entitled The New World Order and is a well-documented examination of just what this phrase means to the future of the world. My third book is entitled Masonry, Conspiracy Against Christianity, and is an examination of the evidence from their own literature that worldwide masonry has a, quote, true purpose, unquote, and that is simply the destruction of Christianity. My fourth book is entitled Jesse James, United States Senator, and it examines the evidence that Jesse James, America's most famous outlaw, was not murdered in 1882, but that he lived until 1951 under a variety of aliases. And that during the period of 1882 until 1951, when he died, he was a major figure in America's past. And with this introductory information, it is time for me to begin the study of America's betrayal and treason in the war in Vietnam. And a good place to start is in the definition of the word conspiracy. It is defined in a dictionary as a combination of people working in secret for an evil or unlawful purpose. Notice that their purpose must be both evil and secret. And the reason they operate in secrecy is because evil people with evil motives seek secrecy and good people with good motives seek publicity. This conspiracy seeks secrecy because if the people became aware of their plans before they were brought into fruition, they would not be allowed to succeed. So if a conspiracy in America planned a war years in advance, they would obviously make their plans in secret because their plans were evil. Perhaps you might remember a bumper sticker that appeared during the Vietnamese War, which read, suppose they gave a war and nobody showed up. This is the reason that they did not tell us what their plans were for the Vietnamese War, because if they did, we would not have sent our family members to fight in it. And without soldiers, you cannot have much of a war. The second word we must define is the word murder. Murder is the taking of a life without a moral cause. Now, I'm not here to debate whether self-defense or capital punishment is a moral cause, but civilization demands that murder must have a that it must have a moral cause to take the life of another. Each of us has been given the right to life by the God who created us. And the reason we punish murderers is because they have wrongfully taken another human's right to life. The God who created us gave us a written commandment when he spoke to Moses many centuries ago. That commandment is, thou shalt not murder. I am certain that some could take these words to mean that if they hired someone else to murder another, they could claim that they did not violate the commandment the murderer did. But I believe that in this case, both of these individuals would be equally guilty of murder and both should be punished. 
One way to murder someone is to create a war, send some soldiers in to fight it, and then send the weapons the enemy needs to kill those soldiers. This is murder as well, and it's precisely what happened in Vietnam. And I call this first-degree premeditated murder. If this presentation was a movie, it would be rated R because of excessive violence. I am going to specifically accuse Lyndon Johnson, President of the United States, during the war years of 1964 to 1969, and Richard Nixon, President of the United States, from 1969 to 1975, when the war ended, of first-degree premeditated murder. I'm also going to accuse hundreds of congressmen and senators of the same crime, first-degree premeditated murder. And the journalists, reporters, and other members of the media who did not tell the American people the truth when they knew it to be true. And there is a reason for this. America's free press is not free. I'm also going to name other individuals, people involved in the war, but not involved with the crime of In fact, three individuals ended the war years before it was supposed to end. I will, I will tell you the story of how these men, not in government or the media, nor in the active military, brought the war to an end in 1973. All of this will be revealed later in other sections of this presentation. Now, why didn't Walter Cronkite or hundreds of others reporting on this war tell us about the intentional murder of America's fighting forces in Vietnam and also what these three men did? And the answer is, as I've already said, because America's press is not free. And they're obligated to spread the lies told to them by those who committed our fighting forces to a war they were not allowed to win. Now, to understand the Vietnamese War, we must go back to the beginning. World War II was fought between the years of 1941 and 1945. And in this part of the world called Southeast Asia, it was fought between the Japanese and the United States. The Vietnamese War was fought between the years of 1964 to 1975. The government of North Vietnam and a guerrilla army known as the Viet Cong fought against the, the South Vietnamese and the United States. So this was about 19 or 20 years ago, uh, before, I'm sorry, 20 years between the two wars. During World War II, the Japanese were occupying the area, and as the war was drawing to a close, they started withdrawing their troops back to Japan. And as they left the area, they abandoned tons of war-making materials. These weapons, ammunition, food supplies, medicine, etc., were gathered up by the Office of Strategic Services, abbreviated to the OSS, and they turned them over to Ho Chi Minh, the leader of that guerrilla army later called the Viet Cong. Please remember this photograph of these two men for a reason I will discuss later. The American government knew that Ho had been educated in Moscow in communist Russia and that he had been exiled to France where in 
1920, he became the first Vietnamese to join the French Communist Party. In 1930, he organized the Indo-Chinese Communist Party. And in 1941, he created the communist-dominated Viet Cong. All of his background was known to the government of the United States prior to World War II. This is the book entitled Strange Ground, Americans in Vietnam from 1945 to 1975 by Harry Maurer. He quotes Kenneth Landon, a State Department officer who met Ho Chi Minh in 1946. Ho was a good communist. I had no doubt that if he dominated the political scene, it would be a communist country. The story was confirmed in this Parade Magazine article that appeared in 1973 entitled Ho was an intelligence agent of the United States. That means he worked for us American taxpayers. In this article, an American intelligence agent named Charles Spen wrote that he recruited Ho in March of 1945 as World War II was ending. Spen wrote, we had a trusted agent whom we regularly supplied with weapons, radio equipment, operators, and medicine. All of it served to reinforce his position and status. The position that the United States was supporting this communist in the planning of a major revolution and war in Vietnam was confirmed by this Parade Magazine article in June of 1982. Parade wrote that American General Philip Gallagher arrived in Vietnam in the summer of 1945 and established a warm rapport with Ho. The soon-to-be-murder of millions of Vietnamese, Americans, Laotians, and Cambodians became a close friend of the American general. The article continued, General Gallagher's speech at a rally in Hanoi, the capital of North Vietnam, in October of 1945, was broadcast over Viet Minh, later called the Viet Cong Radio. In other words, the communists were telling the Vietnamese people that the American government was siding with the communists in a revolution that would start very shortly. This is the book entitled A Bright Shining Lie by Neil Sheehan, who told us who another of these Americans was who assisted the communist Ho Chi Minh, and he says this on page 9. After the entry of the United States into World War II, Lieutenant Colonel Lucien Conian joined the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS, the forerunner of the Central Intelligence Agency called the CIA. He had landed in the area by parachute in 1945. Harry Mauer wrote this in his book, The mission of the OSS was to train a guerrilla. So the message was very clear. The United States government was backing Ho Chi Minh in a communist revolution and ultimately a war in Vietnam. Eight years later, in 1953, Dwight Eisenhower became president of the United States and he started sending American military advisors into Vietnam. These men were not in Vietnam to fight the Viet Cong. They were there to train an army of South Vietnamese to fight the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese Army. 
and in 1960, the American people elected John Kennedy as President of the United States. Sometime later, President Kennedy learned of the plans of the CIA to create a war in Vietnam. And he planned on making a complete withdrawal of all American troops in Vietnam after his re-election in 1964. The fact that President Kennedy planned on withdrawing the troops has been confirmed by at least six different sources. I'd like to discuss three of these. This is Fletcher Prouty, a retired Air Force colonel who worked as a liaison between the CIA and President Kennedy. He's written a book entitled The Secret Team, in which he states that it was known in the administration that President Kennedy was going to withdraw all of the troops from Vietnam before the war started in earnest. The second source was Stuart Udall, the Secretary of the Interior in President Kennedy's administration. That is him to the left of the president. He was quoted as saying Kennedy's admirers say he was in the process of pulling back from Vietnam. The third source was former Speaker of the House Tip O'Neill of the House of Representatives. In January of 1992, he was a guest on the Larry King television talk program, and he said that President Kennedy was going to pull the troops out of Vietnam. So President Kennedy was committed to getting America out of a war that hadn't even started. But on November 22, 1963, President Kennedy traveled to Dallas, Texas, and was assassinated. This is the Los Angeles Times edition of November 23, 1963, the morning after the assassination. I have read over 52 books on the assassination, and I am totally convinced that elements inside six different organizations planned and then carried out the assassination of the president. Those six organizations are the CIA, the FBI, the Mafia, the Secret Service, the Dallas Police Department, and the Masonic Lodge. And the reason they conspired to assassinate the president was because he wanted to end a war that had been planned since at least 1945. And to start the process of the withdrawal of the troops from Vietnam, President Kennedy issued National Security Action Memorandum Number 263, dated October the 11th, 1963, about six weeks before the assassination. The memorandum specifically ordered the withdrawal of 1,000 of the 16,500 troops initially. Upon the death of President Kennedy, Vice President Lyndon Johnson became President of the United States. This is the famous picture of the President being sworn in to the presidency on the day of the assassination. That is Jackie Kennedy, President Kennedy's wife, to his left. Within four days of that event, President Johnson issued National Security Action Memorandum 273, canceling Kennedy's withdrawal plans. One could logically conclude that the reason President Kennedy was assassinated was because he wanted to end a war that had been planned by the government of the United States at least 18 years before, and that President Johnson wanted to carry out those plans. The next step in the coming war in Vietnam was the presidential election of 1964. President Johnson was seeking to be elected on his own right, and he ran against the Republican candidate for the presidency, Senator Barry Goldwater. 
The media made Senator Goldwater out to be a warmonger, meaning he was in favor of involving America in a war in Vietnam. And Senator Johnson was made out, vice president, now president, was made out to be the peace candidate, meaning he wanted to keep us out of a war in Vietnam. I worked for Senator Goldwater in the 1964 campaign as a volunteer, and I was being warned that if I voted for Goldwater, we would be at war in Vietnam within six months of his election. And sure enough, I voted for Barry Goldwater. And within six months of the election, we were at war in Vietnam. But the interesting thing about the election of 1964 was the fact that Goldwater was not elected President Johnson was. During the campaign before the war started, President Johnson was promising the American people, we don't want our American boys to do the fighting for Asian boys. We don't want to get tied down in the land war in Asia. So Johnson was making three promises with those statements. Number one, no American boys would fight for Asian boys. Number two, there would be no land war in Asia. And number three, we would not get tied down in any war in Vietnam. But President Johnson had to know the reason President Kennedy was killed. These war plans had been made after World War II. Therefore, he had to know the war was coming. Therefore, he was lying to the American people. He knew he could not keep these promises. American boys would fight. He would get us into a land war. And he would get us tied down in a war that dragged on for at least eight more years. The next thing that happened occurred in August of 1964 by an incident known as the Gulf of Tonkin incident. The American people were told that two North Vietnamese patrol boats fired on two American destroyers in the Gulf of Tonkin, the body of water just east of North Vietnam. But the interesting thing is that this attack never took place. It never happened. U.S. News and World Report carried an article in their July 23, 1984 edition entitled The Phantom Battle That Led to War. The article told the readers how America got into the war through a phony incident. In November of 1963, President Johnson told planners to develop a series of covert, meaning secret operations, against North Vietnam to discourage its aggressive policies. On July 5th, 1964, U.S. Admiral Grant Sharp, the commander of the Pacific Fleet, requested approval of an intelligence gathering patrol along the North Vietnamese shoreline. The Joint Chiefs of Staff and civilian authorities promptly approved the request. So on July the 17th, 1964, the U.S. destroyer Maddox received orders to enter the Gulf of Tonkin. This is a close-up of the area. Vietnam is on the left, and the Gulf of Tonkin is in the middle. The island off the right about at about 3 o'clock is owned by the Communist nation of China. That makes the water between the two nations international waters, which means any nation may send ships into the area. And this is the area that the destroyer entered. 
On the night of August the 4th, 1964, the Maddox and another destroyer, the Turner Joy, radioed that they were under attack by at least three North Vietnamese PT boats. This is a book entitled In Love and War, written by Admiral Jim Stockdale, at the time a squadron leader on an aircraft carrier also near the Gulf of Tonkin. He heard the report, and he was the first American pilot over the area where the two destroyers were, and he heard the Maddox frantically report that the ship was under attack by three PT boats and that torpedoes were in the water and that the ship was engaging the enemy with his main battery. Life magazine of August the 14th, 1964, reported that the Maddox had avoided several torpedoes and had sunk one of the attacking craft. Newsweek magazine reported in its August 14, 1964 edition, torpedoes whipped by some only 100 feet from the destroyer, and that a PT boat had burst into flames and that it had sunk. But the interesting thing is that the Gulf of Tonkin attack, as I've said, never happened. Admiral Stockdale reported in his book that nobody was shooting at our destroyers that night. No one American out there ever saw a PT boat. There was absolutely no gunfire except our own. None could have been there and not have been seen on such a black night. Admiral Sharp reported that the latest message from the destroyers indicated a little doubt on just exactly what went on. When Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara later asked the Admiral, was there a possibility that no attack occurred? Sharp admitted, I would say that there is a slight possibility. Notice that Admiral Sharp was not saying that he knew with absolute certainty or that we had complete evidence that the attack had happened. He was saying that he had some doubts about whether the event had actually occurred. Finally, for those of you who have the ability to get on the Internet, Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara admits on a three-minute, 34-second clip available on YouTube entitled Gulf of Tonkin, McNamara admits it didn't happen. And here's the reason the media went with the story that our destroyers had been attacked. This comes from the U.S. News and World Report article. Press stories and leaks from U.S. officials suggested that McNamara's 1964 testimony about the Gulf of Tonkin incidents was at best incomplete and at worst part of an elaborate, if improbable, conspiracy. I can presume that the reporter who wrote those words probably bit off his or her tongue when he or she wrote these words about this being evidence of a conspiracy because the press generally does not believe that any conspiracy could exist in any governmental activity. So even though the evidence seemed to imply that a conspiracy existed in faking this incident, the only conclusion that could be drawn from the event was that there might be a conspiracy, and that makes this event improbable. The reporter didn't have the courage to follow up on this story, and this sort of reporting that there was a hidden agenda in the planning and waging of this war went on throughout the entirety of the war and even continues up to the day.
And because of this, millions of people died in Vietnam and the surrounding countries. That is why I accuse the media in general of murder as well. They had the evidence that there was a conspiracy at work, and they did not tell the world the truth. A lot of people in the media saw direct evidence of a conspiracy at work, but they called it an improbable conspiracy and didn't believe it. Two days later, after the alleged attack, President Johnson asked Congress to pass the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution giving him the permission to use retaliatory force against the North Vietnamese. The resolution was passed 416 to nothing in the House and 88 to 2 in the Senate. And Johnson signed the resolution. And we were at war in Vietnam that had been planned by this conspiracy behind the American government in at least 1945. The military advisors in Vietnam laid down their clipboards and grabbed their rifles. All because of an event that simply did not happen. So I asked a question in a three-hour VHS lecture that I produced in 1992. Why did this conspiracy stage a phony attack? Please remember that we, the people, had voted for Lyndon Johnson, the peace candidate, in the election of 1964. And in fact, as I said, he promised us we would not go to war in Vietnam. And we elected him because we did not want the war, so we had to be tricked into it. So they staged the fake incident so that we would support their war plans made in at least 1945. But staging an incident to get America into a war that the American people did not want is not a new idea. It has been tried at least two times before. World War I was fought between the years of 1914 to 1918, and the United States did not enter the war until 1917. Woodrow Wilson was elected President of the United States in 1912 and he was seeking re-election in 1916 as a peace candidate. He was running on a statement that he had kept us out of the war, meaning between 1914 and 1916. President Wilson said this in 1916, this is a government of the people, and this people is not going to choose war. But all the time he was declaring that he was a peace candidate, he was conspiring with at least two others to involve us in the war. One was Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was his assistant secretary of the Navy at the time. As you know, Roosevelt later became the president of the United States. And the other was Winston Churchill, the first Lord of the Admiralty in England. Churchill later became the prime minister of that nation. Apparently, if you do a good job in getting your nation into a war by trickery and deceit, you get to be the leader of your nation. These men were planning an incident to provoke the American people to enter World War I against Germany. And that incident was the sinking of the ocean liner called the Lusitania. This ocean liner was docked in the port of New York on May the 1st, 1915, prior to leaving on a voyage to England. 
The details that will follow came from a book entitled The Lusitania, written by Colin Simpson and published in 1972. The German government tried to warn the Americans who were buying passage on that ship that they should not do so because the Lusitania was a ship of war going to sail through a war zone, meaning the waters off the coast of England. They issued this advertisement in the New York Times newspaper about nine days before the sailing. But the administration of President Wilson was encouraging Americans to do exactly that and travel to England. Even though the Lusitania was owned by the Cunard Lines, it was built on a 50-50 basis with the English government, with the provision that it would resort to the government during a time of war as a troop carrier, and that was its status at the time of its sailing from New York. Wilson knew that J.P. Morgan, the influential American banker, had loaded the ship with six million rounds of ammunition to assist the English army in their war against Germany. Churchill, as the head of the English Navy, knew the ship was on its way to England and knew that the English government was able to read the messages of the German War Command because they had broken the German war code. Churchill knew that a German submarine called the U-20 was in the waters around the southern tip of Ireland because he was being notified of their radio messages. He ordered the Lusitania to stop in the water off the southern shore of Ireland and wait for an English cruiser, the Juno, to join it and escort the ship into the port of Liverpool on the western side of the English island, shown up there by the red block uh, by the word Liverpool in the area called Wales. And on page 19 of his book, Colin Simpson details what happened next. It was here the decision was made that was to be the direct cause of the disaster. No one alive knows who made it, but Churchill must share the responsibility. Shortly after noon on May the 5th, the Admiralty signaled the Juno to abandon her escort mission and return to Queenstown. The German submarine saw the ship sitting idly in the water and fired a torpedo at it. The ship sunk and 128 American passengers drowned. The media then played its hand and convinced the American people that this was a cowardly act of the German government and that America should retaliate against them by entering the war. And we did, and America entered World War I against the Germans on April the 6th, 1917. One of the very many television documentaries about the sunken Lusitania was sent, uh, sent an underwater camera to photograph it, and they discovered that the ship's side was blown out by a massive explosion from inside the hull and not in from the torpedo. This was the confirmation of the claim that the ship's hull contained six million rounds of ammunition and the force of their explosion would blow a hole in the ship under the water line. To show you that the sinking of the Lusitania was a planned event, may I quote Colonel Edward Mandel House, the chief advisor to President Woodrow Wilson. He was asked by Sir Edward Gray, the English Foreign Secretary, who was responsible for relations with foreign countries. What will America do if Germany sinks an ocean liner with American passengers aboard? 
And Colonel House responded, I believe that a flame of indignation would sweep the United States, and that by itself would be sufficient to carry us into war. Staging an event to get the American people to be willing to become involved in a war happened again in World War II. This was, as I've said, fought between the years of 1941 to 1945. And the American people did not want to become involved in this war either. So the conspirators forced Japan to attack Pearl Harbor, Hawaii on December the 7th, 1941. We have been told that the Japanese government maliciously attacked Pearl Harbor without warning nor provocation. But in my book, The Unseen Hand, I discuss the evidence that the American government started forcing Japan to attack us in 1919 after World War I. Churchill, now Prime Minister of England, and Franklin Roosevelt, now President of the United States, needed to stage an incident so that America would join England in its war against Germany. And that incident was the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. And to understand that event, we need to go back to 1923 when Army General Billy Mitchell was ordered to visit Pearl Harbor to inspect the defenses of the island. This is a book written about the general entitled General Billy Mitchell, published in 1952 by Roger Burlingame. On page 100, he reports the general inspected the island and projected an imaginary war in which Japan would attack and submitted a report to the commander of the army on the island. And that he understood the vulnerability of unprotected ships at anchor. Nothing was done in shoring up the weaknesses that the general saw. The next step in the plans for the attack occurred in 1932, when the United States conducted a naval exercise on Pearl Harbor. They staged an attack on the harbor from the north from the sea. And it showed that the island was vulnerable from the north, from the sea. And they invited the Japanese Admiralty to come and watch the attack. Simply stated, the reason they invited the Japanese Admiralty to come to Pearl Harbor was to see that if they ever wanted to attack Pearl Harbor, they should do so from the north by air. And then the American government did nothing to shore up its defenses on the north side of the island. Japanese spies on the island kept Japan informed about the fact that America did nothing to improve the defenses on the northern side. And the final examination at the Japanese Naval Academy after 1932 was to plan an attack on Pearl Harbor. And President Franklin Roosevelt was speaking as the peace candidate on October the 23rd, 1935, he said, It shall be my earnest effort to keep this country unentangled from any possible war that may occur across the seas. And later, in October 1940, about 14 months prior to Pearl Harbor, he said, I shall say it again and again. Your boys are not going to be sent into any foreign war. And on December the 7th, 1941, Japan did attack Pearl Harbor. This is a drawing of the anchorage of the harbor on the morning of December the 7th, 1941. 
The nine battleships are marked in red, showing that seven of them were tied up in what could be called a battleship row, meaning that each could be attacked by a series of planes flying from the south right over them in a line. It is an interesting fact that there were nine battleships in the Pacific Fleet, and all nine of them were tied up in Pearl Harbor. And there were three aircraft carriers, and each of them was out to sea. Many battleships, many observers, find this to be very mysterious. The Navy knew that in a war like the one envisioned in this theater, the battleship would not be of much value, but the aircraft carrier would be. Is this the reason that all of the aircraft carriers were out to sea the morning of the attack and that the battleships were all tied up in port? These are the results of the Pearl Harbor attack. Four battleships sunk, four of the battleships damaged, zero aircraft carriers sunk or damaged, and 2,345 military killed. But after the attack on Pearl Harbor, he said this, we don't like it, we didn't want to get in it, but we are in and we're going to fight it with everything we've got. So he was saying these things all the time. He and his administration were working to provoke Japan into attacking the American forces because he knew the lesson learned in World War One: Provoke an incident so horrible that the American people will get angry enough to allow the planners to fight a war that they had planned. On December the 8th, President Roosevelt asked Congress for a declaration of war against Japan. He called the attack a day of infamy, but somehow failed to mention that he had assisted in the planning of an incident to get us into a war the people did not want. But once again, this was a staged event intended to provoke the American people to anger, to accept a declaration of war against Japan. And to show you that this was true, I would like to quote Henry Stimson, President Roosevelt's Secretary of War. He made this statement when he was questioned by one of the nine committees investigating the Pearl Harbor attack. In spite of the risk involved in letting the Japanese fire the first shot, we realized that in order to have the full support of the American people, it was desirable to make sure the Japanese be the ones to do this so that there should remain no doubt in anyone's mind as to who were the aggressors. The question was how we should maneuver them into firing the first shot without allowing too much danger to ourselves. As I said, during and after the war, there were nine congressional investigations into the attack at Pearl Harbor, and not one of them concluded that Roosevelt knew about the impending attack and that he sat in the White House waiting for the news that Pearl Harbor had been attacked that Sunday morning. Several years ago, I found a copy of the top half of the front page of the Hilo, Hawaii Tribune-Herald newspaper with its headline of Japan may strike over weekend. This newspaper was dated November the 30th, 1941, the Sunday before the next weekend 
Saturday the 6th, and Sunday the 7th of December. So they were warning Hawaii that a Japanese attack could be coming the next weekend. So the question should be asked, how come this newspaper knew that Japan was going to strike the following weekend, but President Roosevelt did not know? I would hazard a guess that President Roosevelt's intelligence sources were greater than those of the newspaper. But the far more intriguing question is why there were nine congressional investigations into this question, and none of them determined that Roosevelt knew in advance of the attack. So if the president was not guilty of a dereliction of duty in not preparing for that attack, it must have been Admiral Husband Kimmel, the commanding officer of the Naval Forces, and or General Walter Short, the commander of the armed forces in Hawaii. There were calls for court-martials for these two officers. In fact, they demanded a court-martial so that they could prove that they were not derelict in their duties. And none was ever granted. Finally, on May the 25th, 1999, the Senate voted to clear the names of the two officers of the charge of a dereliction of duty as a result of the Pearl Harbor bombing. And again, on the 12th of October, 2000, the Senate exonerated the two military officers of a dereliction of duty in the bombing of Pearl Harbor. But this leads to a far bigger problem. If the two officers were not guilty of a dereliction of duty, that means that the commander-in-chief of all armed forces, President Franklin Roosevelt, was guilty of a dereliction of duty. But Roosevelt was never charged for what he did to provoke Japan into attacking Pearl Harbor. And no one wondered why these nine congressional investigations did not charge the president with a dereliction, as was done twice by the Senate of the United States. So we have now seen how Woodrow Wilson, Franklin Roosevelt, and Lyndon Johnson all created a horrible event to get us into war. They all followed the same script, and to get us willing to go to war, they lied to us. Apparently, these three men all have read the works of Plato in his book entitled The Republic, who wrote, The rulers of the state are the only ones who should have the privilege of lying. They may be allowed to lie for the good of the state. And why did these three presidents lie to the American people? I believe it was because of George Washington's farewell address as he was leaving public life on September the 17th, 1796. Against the insidious wiles of foreign influence, the jealousy of a free people ought to be constantly awake. Since history and experience prove that foreign influence is one of the most ruinous foes of Republican government. The great rule of conduct for us in regard to foreign nations is it is our true policy to steer clear of permanent alliance with any portion of the foreign world. 
And that was America's foreign policy from 1786 to 1916. For about 130 years, we stayed out of the affairs of foreign nations until World War I. So in summary, the conspirators wanted a war in Vietnam, and the American people didn't. So they staged a phony event, the Gulf of Tonkin incident, never happened. They tricked us. So we would now get tied down in a land war in Asia. But the problem, the planners had another problem. Vietnam was largely an agrarian economy. About 80% of the people lived on farms. They had no war-making technology. They had no missiles, no radar, no tanks, no jet aircraft, and no rifles. But these planners wanted a 20th century. And there were only two major countries that had missiles, radar, tanks, jet aircraft, and rifles. They were the nations of the United States and the Soviet Union. So the plan became one that would have the Soviet Union supply the North and the United States supply the South. And then the United States would supply communist Russia. In other words, the United States supplied both sides of the war. This is a cartoon that appeared in the Dallas Morning newspaper sometimes sometime during the Vietnamese War. The entire cartoon shows this trade rather dramatically. The upper right-hand corner shows a smiling Uncle Sam carrying trade to the Russian officer, who in turn pipelines it down to the North Vietnamese. And out of the pipeline comes rations, medicine, rifles, pistols, hand grenades, and machine guns. And since this is a two-party trade, Uncle Sam has to get something back in return, and they did dead American soldiers in flag-draped coffins. This was, in cartoon form, one of the untold stories of the Vietnamese War, but it was 100% accurate. This sale of technology to communist Russia not only went on during the entirety of the war in Vietnam, it has been going on ever since the communist revolution of 1917 in Russia. And it has been our policy under both Democrat and Republican administrations. This is Anthony Sutton, who has written at least six books on the subject of this aid and trade being sent to Russia, including this book entitled National Suicide, America's Military Aid to the Soviet Union, published in 1973. These are Professor Sutton's conclusions. There is no such thing as Soviet technology. Let me repeat that. There is no such thing as Soviet technology. Almost all, perhaps 90 to 95 percent, came from the United States and its NATO allies. What this means is that the United States has constructed its own enemy, Russian communism. Sutton went on, the Soviet Union has used American technology to kill Americans. And the sale of war-making technology went on during the entire Vietnamese War. 
Next, I would like to discuss the evidence that our government knew that this statement of Professor Sutton's was true. The U.S. News and World Report magazine during the 1968 campaign, meaning right in the middle of the war in Vietnam, reproduced the 1968 Republican Party platform. The red lines on the left side are the ones that I'm going to read. This is what the party said. Nations hostile to this country will receive no assistance from the United States. What that means is that if your nation is fighting the United States, your nation will not receive assistance in any form from the United States. What is wrong with that? Absolutely nothing. That is a perfectly moral, constitutional, and rational position. We would want the Republican Party, and for that matter, the Democrat Party as well, to take such a position. The Republican Party continued, We will not provide aid of any kind to countries which aid and abet the war efforts of North Vietnam. The Republican Party knew that Communist Russia was the major supplier of aid to North Vietnam, so this promise was primarily directed to that nation. But it obviously applied to any country assisting the North Vietnamese in killing Americans. Once again, what's wrong with that? Absolutely nothing. That is the perfectly moral, constitutional, and rational position. Candidate Richard Nixon, the Republican candidate for president in 1968, ran on that platform. He was also victorious in his quest as he was elected president of the United States. This U.S. News and World Report article issued after the election listed what we could expect from a Nixon presidency. We'll read the quote around 7 o'clock on the left. Candidate Nixon said this at the American Legion Convention that September before the election. There should be no aid or credit of any kind with any country, including the Soviet Union, that aids the enemy in Vietnam. How could anything be clearer than this? The American government should not assist anyone in the killing of America's fighting men. What is wrong with that? Absolutely nothing. That is a perfectly moral, constitutional, and rational position. As I said, it was known by the American government that about 80% of the war-making technology came to North Vietnamese from the Soviet Union. So candidate Nixon was specifically addressing the Soviet Union. And as I said, Nixon won the presidency in 1968. One can only wonder whether candidate Nixon knew what the premier of North Vietnamese, North North Vietnam, said on May the 24th, 1965. We shall defeat the Americans with Soviet weapons. How could the question, now could the question become, did President Nixon deliver on the promises he made as candidate Nixon? And the answer is a resounding no. The Export Control Act of 1949 provides the president with the authority to prohibit exports from the United States for any or all of three reasons, foreign policy, short supply, and or 
national security. We were at war with North Vietnam, although it was not declared by Congress in accordance with the Constitution. So President Nixon could prohibit exports to Communist Russia and claim it was in the interest of national security because he had the power to do so. Notice that the president alone has this power. He does not need to go to Congress. He does not need to go to the people. He has the power by himself. All presidents have had the power since 1949. So therefore, President Nixon could deliver on the promises made by candidate Nixon and the Republican Party platform. He promised us that he would not provide any aid to the Soviet Union during the war. We can now determine if he delivered on that promise. The Department of Commerce prints a quarterly report called Export Control. This covers from the third quarter of 1969. Notice that since this is a quarterly report, it only covers three months of a year. By the way, I've read all of these reports at the University of Arizona several years ago. I would like to use the report for the third quarter of 1971, a year and a half before the war ended, for a specific reason that I will explain in a few minutes. Nixon was still president in 1971, and Americans were still dying in Vietnam. Page 11 of this report lists the commodities license for export to East European destinations in the third quarter of 1971. This is the copy of that page, and it lists the products sent to the Russian government on the bottom third of the list on the left and all of the right side. I would like to discuss eight of these goods sent to Russia in just this one quarter alone when President Nixon knew that the Russians were supplying at least 80% of the war-making technology to North Vietnam. We sent Russia polyvinyl butyrol, a synthetic rubber used in bulletproof glass. Apparently, the North Vietnamese drivers of the Russian tanks were getting shot, so they needed a bulletproof glass to equip their tanks. Ethyl anti-knock compounds. This product is used in gasoline to reduce engine knocks. $170 million worth of electronic computers, parts, and accessories. Parts for rolling mills. As I understand it, rolling mills make steel. Ball and roller bearings. This is one of the most strategic items we sold them. You cannot roll a tank, move an armored personnel carrier, rotate a radar system, or fire a missile without ball and roller bearings. Russia supplied tanks, armored personnel carriers, radar and missiles to North Vietnam, and we sent ball and roller bearings to Russia. We also sent Russia $4 million worth of oil and gas field production equipment. We sent Russia the latest technology on improving their gas production facilities. Apparently, the Russian gasoline octane wasn't high enough. We sent them airborne navigation equipment and parts. Apparently, the Russian planes were crashing into the mountains in Vietnam. So we sent them the latest technology on better navigation equipment. And lastly, this is the reason I selected this report to use. We sent Communist Russia $17 million worth of trucks and parts in that one quarter alone. This is a map of Vietnam, and you will see red arrows showing you 
where a road was utilized for moving goods from North Vietnam into South Vietnam to kill Americans in South Vietnam called the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Communist Russia was supplying trucks to North Vietnam so that they could move these supplies. And American pilots were asked to destroy these trucks and to reduce the flow of war-making technology and soldiers into the South. Russia must have been losing a great number of their trucks, so they called their wholesaler the United States and ordered some more. And their wholesaler sold them a new supply. U.S. News and World Report had an article in their January 30th, 1967 issue that stated that the North Vietnamese war machine runs almost entirely on Russian oil. In the past 18 months, the Russians shipped in 300,000 tons. In December of 1966, the Soviets shipped nearly 25,000 metric tons of gasoline and oil into Haiphong. And the United States sent Russia oil and gas field production equipment. I have heard from pilots in Vietnam that there was a standard oil refinery in Haiphong operating all the time during the entirety of the war. Maybe this technology was being sent into the standard oil refinery located there. I do know this. The port of Haiphong was off limits to American bombers during the entirety of the war. I guess the planners were afraid some aircraft would blow up the refinery there and all of the Russian motorized equipment would run out of gasoline. So they made the port off limits to bombing runs. That makes sense, doesn't it? Before I leave this export control bulletin, I would like to relate a very intriguing discovery that I made a few years ago. I first heard about these reports back in the 1970s during the war. I purchased three of them directly from the Department of Commerce or the U.S. Government Printing Office and kept them for my files. I wrote about their contents in my 1985 book entitled The Unseen Hand. I showed them in my lectures and videos by taking pictures of them for that slide presentation that I made entitled Vietnam, America's Betrayal and Treason. In other words, I was making them a source of excellent documentation of this aid and trade between the United States and Communist Russia. And I visited the University of Arizona Library to check something after I had read through each one of them at some earlier date. They were not on the shelf where I had found them just a few months before. So I asked the librarian if they had been removed to another location and was told they had been asked to destroy them for space reasons. Apparently they felt they simply took up too much room. Now, the report was first printed in the third quarter of 1947, as best I can determine, and quarterly thereafter, which means that they would have printed a total of 214 of them by the last quarter of the year 2000. If that was the year that they told me that they had to destroy them because of a lack of space. Now, simple math tells me that 214 reports at about a quarter of an inch in width means that all of the reports could be stored on less than a five-foot-long shelf. I called the library at the University of at Arizona State University and at the state capitol, and they also reported that they had been asked to destroy six, destroy 
reports because of a lack of space. Now, the University of Arizona is a four-story library with an attached three-story wing and a complete basement. And I would suppose they house thousands of books on hundreds of shelves. So a five-foot shelf would not take up too much space. But I think someone in the United States government was asked to have these destroyed all over the United States because I was making it public as a way to confirm that it has been the United States government that was supplying the Russians with the material to kill Americans in the Vietnamese War. And the government did not want you to know that. This is a shorter form issued by the Department of Commerce. This report was issued on October the 12th, 1966. It reports that the department was revising the commodity control list to permit 400 non-strategic commodities to move under general license to the USSR. Please remember that these goods were termed non-strategic by our Department of Commerce. But I'm of the opinion that non-strategic goods can be used as strategic goods if they have applications for making technology. I'm certain that our government was given some reassurance by the communist Russian government that they would never use a non-strategic good for strategic purposes. Certainly, we got that confirmation, didn't we? Maybe we took them at their word so that they were not going to send them to Vietnam to kill Americans. Our government would not send Russia something that could be used to kill Americans. Certainly not. In that list were the following. Bandages and surgical dressings. Rifle cleaning compounds. Please remember this for a reason I will discuss in a few minutes. Shipping containers. Aircraft and automotive spark plugs. And petroleum. I am certain that none of these goods were then sent to North Vietnam to assist the North Vietnamese kill American soldiers. In 1967, November, a special House Armed Services subcommittee released a report that claimed that American soldiers in Vietnam were experiencing a shortage, frequent shortage, of rifle cleaning equipment. That must mean that the Russians got first priority over our own fighting men in Vietnam. We didn't want to upset our communist Russian allies in this war, did we? Between 1967 and 1969, the Russians imported $30 million worth of cattle hides from the United States. I don't know how the Russians used these hides, but I do know that combat boots are made from cattle hides. But I am certain that we got, once again, some guarantee from the Russians that none of these hides would be used in making boots for the North Vietnamese soldiers busy stomping through the jungles in combat boots as they killed Americans. I'm certain we got that guarantee. In 1969, the Export Control Bulletin reported that America sold Russia 7 million pounds of tungsten. Tungsten is used in making armor plate steel for tanks and armored personnel carriers. I can imagine that the Department of Commerce also got some guarantee from the Russians that this tungsten was going to be used in making, making taxi cabs stronger in Russia. 
And to show you that there was real concern for this type of foreign aid, my research developed that in late 1969, America loaned Sweden $50 million. In 1970, Sweden loaned uh, $45 million to North Vietnam. Apparently, Sweden kept $5 million as a carrying charge for the cost of handling the transaction because America would never loan money directly to communist North Vietnam. We would want to use a middleman, in this case, the nation of Sweden, to handle the transaction for us, and we'd pay them $5 million. Keep saying Sweden is our ally. But I must be honest in my reporting. President Johnson did take one significant step towards curtailing the exportation of strategic goods during the war under the provisions of the Export Control Act of 1949. In 1966, he decided to prohibit American businessmen from sending petroleum, rubber chemicals, rubber chemicals, and iron and steel products to one of our most spirit enemies during the Cold War, the nation known as Rhodesia. Perhaps he misunderstood and thought he was prohibiting these products to be sent to Russia and not Rhodesia. Understand that both nations spell the name of their country with an R at the beginning. And that certainly could be an honest mistake, couldn't it? Anyway, he made no such effort in the case of Russia during the war. Johnson explained his decision with these words. The general policy is to deny applications for such items that would make a significant contribution to the economy. Apparently, the sale of these products to Russia when they were supplying them to the North Vietnamese to kill Americans wasn't deemed to make a significant contribution to the economy of Russia. Rhodesia was deemed to be a higher risk than communist Russia. So we curtailed the shipment of these goods to them and not the Russian government. By the way, Rhodesia wanted to send troops to Vietnam to fight alongside the American boys, and Johnson refused. Now, it wasn't as if Congress and the president did not know that Russia was supplying goods to North Vietnam to kill Americans during the war. I would like to give you at least two evidences of that fact that the American government did know. Congressman H.R. Gross of Iowa introduced an amendment to the Foreign Aid Bill in November of 1967 to prohibit American foreign aid grants to nations which traded with North Vietnam. The bill was defeated by Congress. What's wrong with the bill? Absolutely nothing that is a perfectly moral, constitutional, and rational position. But the Congress didn't agree, and they defeated the amendment. In 1969, Congressman Earl Landgreb, shown on the left here, proposed an amendment to the Export Control Act of 1949, which read, No commodities, military or otherwise, shall be authorized for shipment to any foreign nation which sells or furnishes to North Vietnam any equipment, materials, or commodities. In other words, if you help our enemy, we will not help you. What's wrong with that? 
nothing. It's a perfectly moral, constitutional, and rational position. But the amendment was defeated in Congress. I would now like to give you an example of a congressman who supported the sale of this technology to communist Russian to kill Americans during the Vietnamese War. This is American, I'm sorry, Arizonan, Arizona's Congressman Morris Udall, one of several. And on July 14, 1977, I wrote this letter to him. I told him about the sale of technology to Russia while they were supplying 80% of the technology to kill Americans. In I asked him, why did you not oppose this continuing sale while you were publicly opposed to our involvement in the war in Vietnam and you had a chance as a congressman to vote against it? I wrote, I'm certain that you will agree with me that such trade with communist Russia was immoral and that it should not be allowed to continue. He responded by sending me this letter on July the 20th, 1977. He wrote, the more the Soviet Union opens up to Western technology, the more their society opens up, and thus the more susceptible to change they become. While I would prefer that they might not have our military technology, I'm sure you would agree with me that sharing our other technology is and will continue to be beneficial to all concerned. And then he signed it, sincerely, Morris Hudo. Notice that he said that Russia would open up and become more susceptible to change. Did they change during the entirety of the Vietnamese War? No, they stayed committed to killing Americans by sending North Vietnam the technology it needed to kill Americans. Here is the fallacy in his thinking. Let's say that we sold Russia wheat as a non-strategic trade. That would free up Russian farmers from producing wheat so that they could work in a factory producing strategic products that could be used to kill Americans in Vietnam. Here is the truth. There was no non-strategic aid with the Soviet Union during the war in Vietnam. Everything they bought was used to kill Americans. In 1977, prior to me writing that letter, I met the congressman after a speech at a luncheon open to the public. I had this quarterly report in my hand, and I handed it to him. I asked him first if he was in Congress during this quarter, and he said he was. I asked him then why he supported the sale of this technology to Russia while it was known that they were supplying some 80% of the technology to North Vietnam to kill Americans. And listen to his answer. He said, it creates jobs. So I responded, yes, it does. The morticians who bury the Americans who were killed because of the sale of this technology were able to hire more technicians to bury these soldiers. And the congressman walked away. Now ask yourself if this was a good policy. Ask the people who lost sons or fathers or husbands during the war. 
let them decide if this was a good policy. But for some strange reason, they were never asked. Because they knew that these survivors would not have approved of it. Because they knew it was a policy of our government that murdered these fam their family members. It was not a good policy. I would now like to give you another example of how American technology was being used to kill Americans. This is Sergeant Peter Stark, a former Green Beret sergeant in Vietnam. He came to Portland, Oregon in 1970 as a part of a nationwide speaking tour in which he discussed his involvement in the war. This is what he said in part. In 1966, after the war started in 64, the United States sent the Soviet Union the specifications to a glycerol plant. Glycerol is used in the manufacture of explosives. Specifically in Vietnam, glycerol is used as a detonator in booby traps. Now, this is a poor quality drawing I made myself of what a booby trap looks like. It was used in Vietnam and was made in communist Russia. It consists of two parts. The glycerol is in the top container and the TNT is in the bottom. In Vietnam, they would dig a hole, bury the landmine, and then cover it with a thin layer of dirt. A soldier would come walking through the area and would not see the booby trap and step on it. This would cause the glycerol on the top to explode down, causing the TNT to explode, and then the entire thing, including the shattered metal casing, would come back up, either blowing off the arms or the legs of the person who stepped on it or killing him outright. Sergeant Stark then told us just how important these landmines were in Vietnam. He said over 50% of all American casualties suffered in Vietnam have come from booby traps. This is again a close-up of Sergeant Peter Stark, retired of the U.S. Army. The picture does not show it, but he is seated in a wheelchair because he stepped on a booby trap. He gave his speech on crutches, as I remember. Who blew off his legs? Was it the North Vietnamese? Was it the Viet Cong? Was it the Russians? No, it was the United States government for exporting the specifications of a glycerol plant during the Vietnamese War. I would like to tell you a personal story. In 1968, I was married. My wife was a member of the Junior League, a group of young women who did acts of charity. During the Christmas season, they arranged for their organization to visit a veterans hospital near Oakland, California, and take candy and cookies to those patients who could not go home for the holidays as a way of thanking them for what they had done for those of us in America by their sacrifice. We went from ward to ward singing Christmas carols, and we came to a ward where the patients all had missing arms or legs. I started down the row of beds with my sack of candy and stopped to chat with several of these young soldiers. When suddenly I remembered the sale of the technology to Russia to make a glycerol plant so that the Russians could make booby traps to injure these fine young men in this hospital. I excused myself and went outside the hospital and cried. 
I cried because I knew who had blown off their arms or legs. It was the very government that sent them to the war. And I cried because I hadn't done enough to stop this madness. I would now like to start my explanation as to why all of this happened. Just what was the purpose of the Vietnamese War? Why did the conspiracy plan the war in at least 1945? This is a picture of Winston Churchill, Prime Minister of England, during World War II, giving his famous V for victory sign. He used it to rally the English people during the war so that they would support his efforts to win a victory in World War II. This is the same sign being given during the war in Vietnam, but it was being flashed by the radical left not to bring a victory to the troops fighting in the war, but to signify peace. Those who flashed this sign generally wanted our government to totally withdraw their troops and bring a climate of peace to the area. And it was flashed all the time during the war not to bring a condition of peace to the war, but to indicate that victory in Vietnam was not an option. No one that I could find explained just what the letter V had to do with peace. <laughs> Some claimed that it was because the anti-war protesters <laughs> could not spell. But the media stole the victory symbol from those who wanted a victory in Vietnam and then a withdrawal of our troops, allowing the people in South Vietnam a full measure of freedom, not a future filled with the slavery of communism. Here is a picture of a young woman flashing the sign in 1986, apparently because the media was giving the sign back to those who wanted a victory in any war. So we must ask why the media took the sign away from those who wanted a victory in the war in Vietnam. And it was simply because the planners and the media that they controlled did not want a victory in Vietnam for very important reasons, not made public to the American people until I released that singular reason in the first edition of this lecture back in 1992. But there were people talking about victory in Vietnam. This is a flyer announcing a movie to be shown in Portland, Oregon, when I lived there in 1971. The picture in the lower left is that of John Wayne, the movie star. The moderator of the movie that featured political leaders, military officers, and even a couple of people from the media representing the case for a victory in Vietnam. And some in America decided that one way to achieve a victory in Vietnam was to do just that. Cut off the supplies from the enemy and the war would wither and end of its own weight. And they reasoned that they, that the way to accomplish this was to have an American government bring an end to the sale of war-making technology to the communist Russian government. And they started a nationwide petition drive to get Congress to do exactly that between the years of 1967 and 1971. This particular petition was issued during phase two of the drive, started in 1970. The committee that started the drive was called SHAME, S-H-A-M-E, which stood for Stop Helping America's Marxist Enemies. These people collected more than 4 million signatures, reportedly the largest 
petition drive in the history of the United States. Their signatures were collected in groups of 10,000 and then delivered to the President and the Congress of the United States. This is a list of the congressmen and senators who were given signed copies of the petitions between May the 14th, 1968, and June the 29th, 1970, when the total of signatures totaled about 1.7 million at that time. So who was it that conducted the petition drive? Was it the VFW, the Democrat Party, the Republican Party, the Daughters of the American Revolution? Was it CBS News after doing a television program exposing the subject? Was it the AFL, AFL or the CIO unions? It was none of the above. There was only one group in the entirety of the United States that cared enough about the issue. It was the John Birch Society. They were the only ones in America who attempted to stop the sale of this war-making technology that was being used to kill Americans. But the tragic truth is that Congress did not want to stop it. Only the John Birch Society and the four million people who signed the petitions. Yet the Birch Society was being attacked by the American media as being an extreme group of radicals. And Congress and the President did not stop this trade even after they received the signed petitions. And the reason no one in the American government was listening was because it was the official policy of the government to promote this trade. This is Department of State Publication 8117 issued in August of 1966, about a year after the war started. As you can see, it is called private boycotts, boycotts versus the national interest. And this is what it said on page two. Is it illegal or unpatriotic to sell peaceful goods to the communist countries of Eastern Europe? A small but active minority apparently believes it is unpatriotic to trade in any products from any communist country. Are these Americans advancing the interests of the, of the United States? The government of the United States does not believe so. On the contrary, it believes they are harming the United States national interest by obstructing a foreign policy that has been developed by four administrations since World War II. And I say this in response. I say those who supported the sale of technology were murderers. Next, I would like to explain how the American government intentionally frustrated the efforts of the soldiers and airmen in the war. In his book, Navy pilot Jim Stockdale wrote, All targets in Vietnam were selected in Washington on the basis of a naive idea that delicate peacemaking signals could be transmitted by military action. My pilots saw it as taking very expensive and highly capable airplanes right by the power plant to bomb the privy, meaning an outhouse. We found ourselves foolishly risking airplanes and pilots' lives on meaningless targets. What the Admiral said was confirmed in another source 
in this case, in an article on the Vietnamese War. This comment was made by an unnamed Air Force pilot who was quoted in 1967 as saying that he was ordered to destroy an empty bus and a buffalo pulling an irrigation wheel and an empty straw-thatched hut. John McCain, the senator from my state of Arizona, and of course the 2008 Republican Party candidate for president of the United States, was a Vietnam pilot and who was shot down to become a prisoner of war for several years, also confirmed the reports just cited. He said that the first target he was asked to destroy in his multi-million dollar A-4 Skyhawk bomber was a military barracks already blown up by countless bombing raids. So the question is, who ordered these pilots to risk their aircraft and their very lives attacking meaningless targets? Was it the generals in the Air Force and Navy? No, it was the civilian policymakers who were responsible for the conduct of the war. And they were working in agreement with the president, the commander-in-chief of all of the American military forces. These policy planners had issued what they called the Rules of Engagement. They were published in 1985 in the Congressional Record, and I would like to discuss some of the more significant ones. This is an actual photograph taken in Vietnam of the two Russian-made MIG fighters parked on a dirt runway, big fighters. Should an airplane pilot, American pilot spot these two planes, they could not destroy them before they took off to engage the American pilot. They could only engage the planes after they had taken off and displayed some form of hostile intent. This is a photograph taken of a North Vietnamese surface-to-air missile site showing four SAM missiles surface-to-air. The American pilots could not destroy these missiles supplied by our communist ally, the Soviet Union, while the missile sites were being constructed only after they were operational. The result of these strange rules of engagement was that 80% of the American prisoners of war captured by the North Vietnamese were airmen shot down over missile sites and air bases. America's prisoners of war were not the ground soldiers who were actually in hand-to-hand combat with the North Vietnamese. They were pilots shot down by these strange rules of engagement. Air Force General John Lavelle tried to protect his American pilots after the rules of engagement cost him the lives of two of his pilots. He ordered airstrikes on his own authority on North Vietnamese airfields and missile sites. This was, of course, in violation of the rules of engagement. Was he hailed as an American hero? No, he was relieved of his command for violating the rules of engagement. The admirals and generals tried to solve the actual com- uh, I'm sorry. The admirals and generals who were asked to do the actual combat against the North Vietnamese in this war tried to solve the problem. They prepared lists consisting of the strategic targets that had to be destroyed to win the, tar- the war. They then had to submit these lists to the civilian planners in Washington, D.C. for their approval. Did the planners grant them the approval necessary to destroy these strategic targets? No, they did not. On the list prepared for the year 1966, only 22 
out of the 242 on the generals and admirals list have been struck by the end of the war. That is less than 10%. In that year alone, American pilots flew a total of 106,000 combat sorties against North Vietnam. Less than 1% of these sorties were flown against the vital targets on the list of the admirals and generals. The American ground forces were also affected by these rules of engagement. The planners who decided how the war was going to be fought decided that they would not win the entire country, just part of it. So I made this little illustration to try to illustrate that. They decided to herd the South Vietnamese people into what they called strategic hamlets and then build an army base around them. The base was there to protect the civilians living inside the hamlet, but the surrounding area was not protected by putting troops in that area. They were only there to protect the perimeter. I'm going to make up an illustration using a fictitious American sergeant, Brent Culpepper of Atlanta, Georgia, <laughs> to make my point about this concept of these strategic hamlets. The sergeant is assigned the duty of leading a squad of 10 of these soldiers including himself, to provide protection for the Vietnamese. Nine soldiers plus the sergeant. One night, some Viet Cong soldiers, known, shown by the initials VC, crawl up on top of the hill outside of the perimeter and lob mortar shells into the base. The lieutenant orders Sergeant Culpepper to take his squad up the hill, and the ten of them eliminate the North Vietnamese mortar squad. Let's say that he does and returns to the lieutenant to give his report. He says that he lost two of his men and that there are now eight of them, but that the total, the mortar squad, was eliminated. The lieutenant thanks him for a job well done and expresses regret about the loss of the two soldiers. The next night, more Vietnamese, uh, Viet Cong, crawl up on the mountain to lob more mortar shells into the base. Sergeant Culpepper and his eight men are a seven-man squad is ordered to return to the hill and clean out the Viet Cong, and he does as he was ordered. He returns to the base and gives his report to the lieutenant. Let's say that he reports the loss of two more men and that there are only six of them now, but that he accomplished the task assigned to him. The next night, more Viet Cong crawl up on the mountain to lob more mortar shells into the hamlet. The sergeant is once again ordered up the mountain to clean out this new group of the Viet Cong, and the sergeant does as he was ordered. He returns to the base, now with a total of only four men, and makes his report. After the sergeant gives his report to the lieutenant, he starts thinking about how stupid this strategic, strategic Hamlet strategy is. He wonders why the Army does not station men on top of the mountain to keep that land free of Viet Cong, firing mortar rounds, and then protect the entire countryside. But that was not the strategy of the war. It was to protect the hamlet from a direct assault. He then concludes that this war, this whole war, does not make sense, and that they should include the mountains outside the perimeter to protect the entire hamlet. Notice that the strategy of the war was never to defeat the North Vietnamese, take the territory, and free it from communist control. It was just to protect what you had created, the strategic hamlets. And the sergeant begins to question the whole thing. He gets frustrated 
as he grieves over the loss of six of his men and then decides to take a decisive action himself. He decides to strike out at the army's authority itself. He decides to commit an act called fragging. Fragging stands for fragmenting, meaning you take a hand grenade, pull the pin, and then throw it at your officer as a way of protesting the stupidity of the war. Fragging was the intentional murder of your officer by fragging him with a grenade because the war did not make any sense. This act was the result of the soldier's overall frustration at the entire war and how it was being fought. Wikipedia on the Internet says that they have documented 230 such cases, but as many as 1,400 other officers' deaths could not be explained. I've had Vietnamese veterans in my audiences nod their heads in agreement when I discussed these fragging incidents, indicating that many of them knew they were going on. And I would now like to show you one cartoonist who apparently knows that these fragging incidents did happen. I would like to show you four panels from a daily cartoon that appears in our local morning newspaper that were shown in December of 1990. The cartoon is named Doonesbury and is drawn by Gary Trudeau. The first panel shows an enlisted man sitting in a tent, and off of the panel we hear an officer greet him. Good evening, Sergeant. And the Sergeant responds, Evening, sir. The second panel shows the officer asking the Sergeant, What's going on over there? And the sergeant responds, it's just BD, sir. He's telling old war Viet old Vietnam War stories. BD, I believe, is Doonesbury, the hero of the cartoon. And in the third panel, the officer says, good, that should inspire the men. And in the last panel, the soldier on the left, looking rather incredulous, says, you're kidding. You shot your own officers? And BD says, just the dumb ones, lieutenants mostly. Of course, Doonesbury did not say that they threw grenades at their officers, but he makes the point that enlisted men were killing their officers. Harry Moore, on page 616 of his book entitled Strange Ground, defines fragging as a fragmentation hand grenade as a verb, or as a verb, the action of trying to kill a superior officer. And then he says this about fragging on page 161 of his book. Fragging became an occupational hazard for officers. Obviously, many people knew this was going on. And it just wasn't the strategic hamlet policy that caused this. It was the entire planning of this war. It simply did not make sense. So the question became... Was it planned not to make sense? And the unqualified answer is yes. For a reason that I shall discuss a little later in this presentation. Senator Barry Goldwater was critical of the way the war was planned and was moved to comment. The unskilled amateurs should leave waging a war to professionals because their interference could result in a greater sacrifice in blood. U.S. military forces did not lose the war in Vietnam. Civilian policy makers did. 
General William Westmoreland, the American commanding officer in South Vietnam, wrote this. We are limited. We are fighting. We are fighting a limited war with limited objectives and with limited means. And Ralph Epperson says this, only death was not limited. Air Force General Curtis LeMay, the chief of the staff of the United States Air Force, explained why we did not want to win this war. In Vietnam, we violated every principle of war because Robert McNamara, the Secretary of Defense, was afraid Russia would get mad. And, of course, we did not want to anger our communist ally, Russia, the Soviet Union. The American government apparently felt that Russia was neutral in this war, and if we got them angry, they might become directly involved and start sending war-making technology into the war zone to kill Americans. I wish I had had the way of contacting these planners during the war to advise them that Russia was already mad at us and was sending billions of dollars worth of war-making technology into the war zone to kill Americans. But since I didn't, that must have been the reason that not one of these planners knew that Russia was involved in sending war-making technology to North Vietnam. And I shall always regret that I was unable to find a way of letting them know. But just between you and me, I somehow think they knew. It is my opinion that it was Henry Kissinger, the Secretary of State during President Nixon's administration, who was the major planner for this war. Someone else agreed. Syndicated columnist Joseph C. Harsh wrote, Kissinger was one of the top experts to conclude that military victory in Vietnam is neither possible nor desirable. If this is true, Kissinger should have gone public with his concerns and done all he could to have ended the war. But to my recollection, he did not do such a thing. Why did he feel America could not win the war? In 1976, when he was Secretary of State, nationally syndicated columnist Ernest, Ernest Cuneo wrote, Kissinger's new position assumed that the American people do not have the courage or the strength to stand up to communism if it means war. So it must have been his plan to just play at the war and maybe the North Vietnamese would just go away. And that thought was passed on to President Johnson, according to Air Force Chief of Staff General John McConnell. President Johnson has emphasized that it is our national policy to keep this conflict at the lowest possible level of intensity for humanitarian as well as political reasons. So we are going to murder our armed services for humanitarian purposes. I say this, if you do not commit this nation to victory, do not commit this nation to war.
End of section two. Please go to disc number two for sections three and four.